be looking in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. This is considered one of the key texts when we deal with the issue called church discipline. Now, why in the world are we going this route now? Well, the reason basically I'm addressing this is I'm kind of in a point between studies. We finished Nehemiah. I'm looking to go into Luke soon. But also in the process of while I'm working on our church constitution and realizing that there was an an area that's not touched on in the church constitution, but there's provision made there for it, what I am proposing is a section that we add to our, our church bylaws just addressing specifically how church uh, discipline would be practiced uh, in a biblical manner. So in order to help us think along those lines, I am this morning going to preach from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. Next Sunday, we're going to be preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there we're dealing with a case of, of sin within the church and how Paul addresses that. So I want us to begin here this morning, remembering as we come to this text here, that there is there is a, play, a principle here that God, God has given to us. In fact, Christ has given to us for maintaining order within the Christian community of dealing with matters of sin. Um, church, church discipline is always a subject when you begin to talk about it, think about it, preach on it. It's an interesting subject. And as we look at it here, it's something of an interesting, interesting subject found in an interesting Context. The context that we have here in Matthew chapter 18 is where Jesus' disciples ask a question. Begins the chapter 18 here. The question they ask in Matthew 18 verse 1 is, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, can we imagine why they may have asked that question? You just kind of wonder, you know, we're wondering, Lord, where we fit into this. Any of us be considered among the greatest? you got to wonder if that's not the thinking here. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of of heaven? And Jesus responds to that in verse 4 as He takes a child to His his midst. And He says in verse 4, Whoever then humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But He continues in the following verses warning against doing anything that would cause spiritual harm to any, any like this, any children warning them about sinning against such as these. So then we come to verse 15. It seems that Jesus, in anticipation, and in fact we see by the response of Peter there, where Peter asked down in verse 21, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? It seems that Jesus, in anticipation, turns the idea here around where the context initially has been a warning against committing a sin against someone, causing someone to stumble, particularly the little children. He seems to anticipate the question with his discussion here in verses 15 and following. What about if the sin is against me? What do I do? What's to be the response if I am the one who is sinned against. So let's begin reading here in Matthew 18, verse 15 and following. And if your brother sins, and most most translations add here, against you, go and reprove him in private. Or literally it means, it's translated there, between him and you. 
If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Or the word there, fact, in the NASB is the term literally word, that every word may be confirmed. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You can go back into church history. You can go as far back and perhaps further. We know that it was written in 1561, the Belgic Confession, which is just a, an early confession of the church that was provided to state these are the beliefs, these are the positions that we are coming to as a church. And within that, they, they, they expressed what are the marks of the church. How do you determine whether a gathering is actually a true church, or if it's outside the parameters of what we recognize as a church. They agreed upon three things. Number one, that the church was to be a church, a place where the preaching of the gospel and its purity and clarity is going forth. In other words, the gospel is not being compromised. The gospel is not being confused. The gospel is not being removed. But the gospel is being preached and proclaimed in its purity. Second thing was there's to be the proper administering of the sacraments. There's to be the proper administering of communion. There's to be the proper administering of baptism. And if these things are not taking place, if there's not baptism, again, as to be properly administered, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, communion, if it's not being properly administered, then the, the gathering is not a church. Not to be considered as such. For example, in our own setting today, uh, been some debate in the question with the Salvation Army. They have Sunday morning worship time. Are they a church? The answer to that would be no. They are not. The reason being, they do not. They do not administer the sacraments at the Salvation Army. So those who may be there in whatever capacity, they are not this morning gathered in the context of a church. But the third thing, the third mark that was recognized and confessed in the Belgian Confession in 1681 was the exercise of church discipline. Is a church practicing discipline? Now, generally, when we think about discipline, automatically our minds go to the negative aspects of it, do they not? We think of what is called corrective discipline. And that's part of it. But there is the positive aspect of discipline, and that is formative discipline. Formative discipline is, for example... Right now, sitting under the preaching of the Word, hearing the instruction of God's Word is formative discipline. In other words, we're having our minds trained and directed and perhaps if there are areas that we'll consider this morning, that areas of sin that we'll see that this is formative. It's, it's being under the positive influence of the teaching of the Word of God. Sunday school. It's just the formative discipline of, of the church. And whatever other gatherings we may, we may have, we agree upon that there's teaching taking place. That's part of church discipline. The positive side. That's the formative aspect. And that's part that church is supposed to be participating. However, the reality is, there is the other side. And that is corrective 
church discipline. And it's not one of the most comfortable issues that people want to talk about, but in fact it's an issue that the Scripture does address. It's something that God's Word presents to us. It's something that, quite frankly, has gone by the wayside in many congregations today, which, according to the Belgic Confession, there's question whether or not those places should even be actually considered as a church. But because God's Word does present it, we are must be those who are biblically guided in administering church discipline. Again, we're going to be considering this morning the, the negative aspect of it, corrective discipline. So how do we do that? What does the Scripture give us here as we look at these guidelines? First of all, we must express righteousness in church discipline. In church discipline, we must express righteousness. What is righteous? What is right when dealing with sin within the church? I mean, after all, is not the church the context where we're supposed to demonstrate charity and forgiveness and love? Where do we get the notion that we are to come into anything contrary to that? What is right here? Well, first of all, there is the righteousness of obedience. There is the righteousness of obedience to Christ. You understand here, this is Christ's instruction. This is not mine. This is not ours. This is not even the the collective minds of the church age. This is right here from the Word of God, the words of Jesus Christ, His instruction for the care of His church. He is Lord of the church. He has laid down the instruction here. And so there is the righteousness of walking in obedience to Christ. And therefore, we have the responsibility of of corrective discipline within the context of the church. It is for the protection of the individual. Verse 15, your brother sins. You go and reprove him in private. If he listens, what have you done? You've warned your brother. You've warned him. You've, You've been of aid to him. It's for his protection. For the protection of the individual. But it is also... For the purity of the church. Verse 17. He refuses to listen to them. Tell it to the church. He refuses to listen to the church. Let him be to you the church. As a Gentile. And as a tax gatherer. So there are two principles here. One is the protection of the individual. Two the purity of the church. But this is all under the context of. This is the righteousness of obedience to Christ. Christ has laid down the principle here. And if we are not going to walk in righteousness that is obedience to Christ, it's sin. If we're going to ignore certain sins in the context of the church, it becomes sin to us. We sin if we are not obeying Christ. One man noted... Many years ago, he said this, that when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Because when discipline leaves a church, it is no longer His church. Because His Lordship, His rule, is not being administered within the local congregation. There is the righteousness of obedience. Another thing, there is the righteousness of agreement. There is the righteousness of agreement, particularly with heaven. Look with me in verse 18. 
truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now let me help you to grasp what that means. And so I've just I've just kind of written down a clarifying translation of verse 18. Listen carefully. Whatever you shall bind. And the word bind here means that you forbid or that you prohibit. Whatever you shall bind or prohibit or forbid on earth within the context of the church. Okay? Shall have already been bound. Shall have already been bound or forbidden or prohibitive Prohibited in heaven. In other words, you are aligning what's true of the will of God in heaven in the church. You're bringing it to the to the earthly level. It's already been bound. It's already been prohibited in heaven. It is being prohibited and forbidden on the earth when you bring the corrective discipline within the congregation. When you say these things cannot be. And they go on there, whatever you loose or whatever you permit on earth shall have been loosed already in heaven. In other words, the things that you we permit as a church, we're saying this is in agreement with heaven. This is God's standard. This is God's principle. Look back with me in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 18. This ought to sound somewhat familiar to us. As Peter has made this great confession of faith, and he says, Jesus says to him in verse chapter 16, verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, we're not going where Rome is here, but we understand that he is, he is building the church upon the confession of faith that Peter makes there. And the gates of hell of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you who? The church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind, whatever you shall forbid, on earth shall be already bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what's he saying here? I've given to the church the authority to say who's in and who's out. I give that authority to the church. The keys are given to the church. And as we'll look at next week, that it's a, the church decision. For example, when you get to the issue of church discipline, the conscience of the local congregation, it's not the decision of the elders. It's the, it's the, it is the act of the church that comes at the recommendation from the leadership. But the act of discipline, discipline being administered is an act of the church. He's given... To the church, the responsibility. So Christ gives the church the capacity to act as His representatives in determining what's acceptable and what's unacceptable based upon what is consistent with the righteousness of heaven. So it's just simply saying this that when you bind something as the church, as my representative on the earth, let me tell you something it's already been taken, it's already been declared in, in heaven to be this way. And all you're doing is aligning what's true in heaven with what's true on earth. You're bringing them into, into unity. So there is here the righteousness of agreement with heaven. You can't be more righteous 
You can't do anything more righteous than that that which is in agreement with heaven. That's right. So there is righteousness that is to be expressed in discipline. There is the righteousness of obedience to Christ. But there is also the righteousness of agreement with heaven. We're saying this is true in heaven and it should be true here. It's righteous in heaven. It is righteous here on the earth. Number two, we we've also must exercise church discipline rightly. It must be exercised rightly. Scripture indicates, first of all, that Christian love does, in fact, overlook some sins. That's true. There are some sins that some what we would classify as minor offenses that we need to learn to look beyond. It's proper and it's right. First Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love one for another because love covers a multitude of sins. There are times when we're sinned against by a brother or a sister in the Lord and it's just the type of offense It's just not that big of a deal and we, and we accept it. We've been wrong, but we're willing to forgive. 1 Corinthians 13.5 is speaking there of love. And Paul there says, Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. So there are times that someone's going to sin against us. But we look at those and we say, This is really a very minor offense. Love will cover. That's right. And it's good. There is a place for that. It may be what we would deem frailty of of uh, someone's demeanor or their character. You know that we recognize that. Well, this guy he's got a he's got a real shortcoming in this area of his life, and I'm bearing the brunt of that. But we accept it and we deal with and we go on with it because we recognize, you know, I've got some of those in my life too, and they deal with them. So I'm going to tolerate here, demonstrate a, a spirit of love and charity toward my brother or my sister in the Lord. However, Scripture also makes clear that there are some sins, there are some offenses that are too serious to simply to gloss over, to simply cover with love in the sense of we're not going to make an issue of it, we're going to ignore it because we understand that love is being demonstrated here. There are times that sins are to be addressed. Well, what does this passage tell us about exercising church discipline rightly? Well, number one, first thing is this. The offense must be prominent. The offense must be prominent. In other words, it must be something that is beyond a proper covering of love. Jesus' instruction in this is verse 15. He says, if your brother sins, there's the issue. If your brother sins, go and what? You reprove him. You correct him. There is the the direction here that Jesus gives. You do this. There's Jesus recognizing there are times that your brother is going to sin against you and you and he places it upon us. You need to go to that brother or that sister and say something to them and dress it. It must be prominent. It goes beyond what we would say is the covering of love. Number 2, the offense must be personal. The offense must be personal. It is added in most translations. The ESV, NIV has against you. If your brother sins against you. 
Now the question is whether or not that's really there. Well, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference because his response, it seems to be consistent with the rest of verse 15 to say that it's there, or at least the meaning is, because he says in response, he goes on, if your brother sins against you, you go and reprove him how? In private. Why in private? Because it was a private personal offense. It's something that can be dealt with one-on-one. It's a, and again, the little translation of what says in private here is between him and you alone. So Matthew 18, the text here begins at a one-on-one level. So the offense must be personal. If we're going to make application here of, of Matthew chapter 18, we don't start. We don't start at 17. The true application of Matthew 18 begins with a personal offense. Okay? It must be prominent. Something not going to occur with love. It must be personal. But third, number, it must be, it must be provable. Verse 16. You've gone to your brother. He hasn't listened. Verse 16. He does not listen to you. Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact or word may be confirmed. In other words, it's something that... Look at the terminology used here. He talks about witnesses and the words being confirmed. How is it done? It's either confirmed by the, the guilty party's admission or it's something that you can just simply observe and know that it's true. It's a sin that's apparent. Why? Why must it be provable? Because if it's not provable, you cannot establish it by two or three witnesses. So in other, so in other words, if it's an offense that you cannot prove, you can't even go on to the next step here. If it can't be proven. If he's not willing to admit it because you don't want to place, if you go and you get two other, one or two to come with you, and you want them to come and, and be witnesses for on your behalf, and you're saying he did this, and he's saying, no, I did not do this, it's... A bro- he's still a brother in the Lord at this point. You're regarded as a brother in the Lord. You're putting that those who have come as witnesses, they've got to decide between believing your word against his word. And they can't prove either one. So you can't even go on if it's not provable. So you, they, it must be something that can be proven. It can be demonstrated. This is true. Either the person is willing to admit it. Yes, this is in fact what I have done. Or it's something that the witness can look at and observe. Yeah, there's no question. So that if it gets to the next step, it's brought into the church. When someone makes an accusation saying this this individual has done this, it's not just the voice of one person. It should be someone else. Do you have witnesses to this? Yes, I do. And so they're able to stand and say, you're witnesses to this? Yes, we are. What is the evidence? What's the proof? You don't have any proof then we can't proceed. We're not proceeding here. We're not going to take it on the, on the word of one person. We're not going to do that. So it must be something that is provable to others. What's the guiding principle here? The guiding principle is, again, the rule of love. The rule of love. Sometimes the Christian does overlook Sometimes Christian love does forbear, Ephesians 4.2, forbear at one another. Sometimes Christian love reproves. Sometimes it does. It, it addresses the issue. It addresses the sin. 
but it's for the sake of the brother. And that's what Jesus says. You warn your brother. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he says if you have a brother who's overcome with a fault, he says if you are spiritual, you go to him. You go to him in a spirit of humility. You go to him. But the issue here is sin. Verse 15. It's if your brother sins. We're not dealing with personal preferences. We're not dealing with pet Thieves, we're dealing with sin. Has your brother actually sinned? Has he violated the word and law of God? So, it must be exercised rightly. Church discipline must. It must be prominent. It must be personal. It must be provable. Number three. In administering church discipline, we must exhibit restraint. We must exhibit restraint. Number one. Where does this start in verse 15? It starts with, your brother sins, you go and you do what? You go and you reprove him in private. What do you not do? You do not first of all go to someone else and say, you know what my brother did to me? Why? Because you don't want to make a bigger issue of this than necessary. You do not want to, to take the take the chance of of bringing a stand against his character when if you would have gone to him, he would have recognized he would have repented. There's always that hope, that possibility. You don't go to the church first on a personal offense. You exercise restraint because we are in the process here that is always seeking resolution, not revenge. We're seeking resolution, not revenge. Revenge. So, you demonstrate the appropriate response one step at a time. First, one-on-one. A personal offense has been committed against you by a brother. You go to him in private, one-on-one. And if it's resolved there, it's left there. You go no further. But, if it's not, you go on. Second, you go with one or two more. If it's resolved at this level, he, you go with two more and, and they go and this man's again confronted with this sin. But this time in life, he's beginning to sense something, the gravity of what he's done or maybe the realization. And, he's, and he repents. You know, I have been wrong here. I confess my sin. What do you do? You stop right there. You rejoice in that just, this brother's been won. But the third step is if he doesn't hear, he's still not willing to listen. And it's offense. And it is an offense. It's something you can be proved by, by witnesses. It's brought before the church. But that's the third step. But the goal of church discipline is always repentance and restoration. It's gained, trying to gain repentance, trying to win your brother, trying to bring about restoration with as little residual effect as possible. No more is made of the offense than absolutely necessary. And it's done. In a spirit of humility, again, Galatians 6 1, if you see your brother overcome with a fault and you go to him, you are spiritual, you go to him in a spirit of humility, lest you also be tempted. You go with a spirit of arrogance. Think, how in the world could you fall into something like this? You just better watch out. Watch out. But you go with a spirit of humility, lest Satan throw that or something in front of you and you fall. So it's done demonstrating humility, exhibiting restraint. 
finally, we come to the fourth principle, and that is that we must expel resolutely. We must expel resolutely. So there comes a time when words and conversations, reasonings come to an end. When it's apparent that a, a person who is a professing brother or sister in Christ, when they have been sent, they're in sin, it's clearly demonstrable. It can be proven that they are involved in sin. They've been confronted by the individual. They've been confronted by the one who's gone with others to go as witnesses. He comes to the church unwilling to respond because the heart has become hardened. What recourse is available? What must the church do? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen, mid part of the verse, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is simply using the common language of the disciples' day. When he spoke to these Jewish disciples... And he said to them, you let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. They knew what he meant. They knew what he meant. It's not as though Jesus is here. You know, Jesus is one who opened the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. And he was one who received tax gatherers who were outcasts of the society. But he's saying to them, they recognize the unconverted Gentiles and those who were tax collectors, often cheaters. They were regarded as outside the kingdom of God. Tax gatherers many times were Jewish people who were collecting money for Rome. They were considered to be traitors. Traitors to the nation. Besides the fact that they would take more than they should. But so it is. So is the unrepentant within the context of the church. He's disregarded the personal reproof of one brother whom he sinned against. He thinks no more of the fact that others agree with this one who is offended and they are in agreement with him, encouraging him to come to repentance. And then he places himself outside or even above the instruction or the counsel of the church by refusing to hear it. This man has no place in the church. He has demonstrated that he's not truly a part of the church. So the church simply affirms that which has become apparent. This man's not converted. Or at least indicates that he's most likely not. Now, granted, I have been in situations where I've seen this take place, and it's gone this far, and there has been repentance. Now, whether the man was converted then or was converted previously and fell into a great sin, but he's to be treated as though he's not a brother in Christ. He is excommunicated from the, I've seen that take place. I've seen men who got to that point and they when they saw the gravity of it, they, they repented of their sin. I've also seen men who went through this process and they're, as far as I know, still in their sin. The outcome's not the not the issue here. We don't have control of that. But we are simply, as the church, we are simply affirming that which has become apparent as best as we can discern. This individual has no interest, no concern in the things of God in the Christian community. So we are willing to, we must expel absolutely, resolutely. Out they go. 
And this is to be done with a spirit of humility, not with a spirit of arrogance, but it is for the sake of the purity of the church. And ultimately, it's for the good of the individual, lest they have a false sense that they are part of the Christian community and they are, in fact, not. Is this easy? Are you kidding? <laughs> no. You know, it's not always as neat and tidy as, well, this is a step, step, step. You know, we're dealing with emotion. We're dealing with people that we know. Situations we're dealing with family. No, it's not easy. But we're talking about this is Christ's order for His church. It's not our order for our church. It's His order for His. It's not always neat and tidy. Is there a potential here for abuse? And misuse, absolutely. There's potential here that it could be abused and be misused. But the protections are there. And that it's not just a one-on-one. It ultimately comes to the, the decision of an entire congregation. Is it necessary? Do we have to come to this? Yes. If we're going to be the church of Christ, it may. You know, I'm thankful that I'm in a position that I can preach on this text and this is we're not dealing with an issue. <laughs> you know, we're not dealing with sin. We're not dealing with someone who's who's been apart and they're on they're on the fringe. You know, we're not having to do that. I'm thankful that I can that we can preach on this and share on this and we consider this when there's nothing going on. And it's best to do it that way so that when the fire when the trouble comes, we've already decided, no, this is what the word of God says. Let's carefully, let's prayerfully, let's humbly walk in obedience to the Word of God. And if necessary, if necessary, we will expel this individual from the membership. May God give us grace to regard these principles that we are remembering that all we're doing is that we're expressing the righteousness of heaven. We're not... We're not establishing a new principle. This is God's way. Aligning ourselves, being in agreement with heaven. The righteousness of walking in obedience to Christ. Exercise rightly must be seen as prominent. In other words, something that's, that we're, cannot be covered by love. It's a prominent issue. It's personal. This issue here in Matthew 18, it's a personal offense. And it's provable. And it must exhibit restraint. It must exhibit restraint. Jesus begins here... Small level, one-on-one, and then it grows only as necessary. We must expel resolutely. And I I do want to say just one thing. With all due respect to to our our brother, Randy Ogenen, when he resigned, which I was aware of that, and I was aware he was going to say what he said, except when he made the comment, he said that this has been done pretty much in by Matthew 18. And let me just say to you that that is not the case because, number one, Matthew 18 does not apply to the issues that were being addressed. You'd not have a sinning brother who would be unrepentant. There were issues regarding things that that I was doing or not doing that they were concerned about, but we're not dealing with issues of sin. And number two... If there is an issue that is brought before the church, you expose it and the church deals with it, which that was not done because, again, it didn't apply. 
So again, we need to make sure that we handle these such texts, such issues carefully. To be guided by the Word of God. We do it expressing righteousness. We exercise it rightly. We exhibit restraint. And we expel resolutely if necessary. But we will be guided by the Word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to You for Your Word that helps us through the difficulties, the crises of life. And we know that wherever there is a gathering of Your church, that there is always the potential of any one of us being that sinning brother. Lord, may we be faithful in utilizing the the formative disciplines that are given to us, the means of grace, being under the preaching and teaching of Your Word and applying that to our hearts, that we would be spared the pain, and the church would be spared the pain of ever having to go through what we've considered this morning here in Matthew 18. But we thank You that You've You've guided us through this process. Help us as a church family to walk clearly by the guiding of Your Scripture. In Jesus' name.